Hello, listeners, and welcome back to a special episode of Fantastic Voyage, a podcast about David Bowie. I'm Jesse. And I'm Jesse's co-host, John. Today, we are talking about David Bowie and the 1960s uh, in kind of like a wrap-up format episode. Um, We're calling it the best of the 60s because we've curated a playlist that we think depicts Bowie's or this era of Bowie. We're also going to be just kind of wrapping up some of the loose ends, including songs that weren't uh, included on an album or weren't even released, maybe Uh, just some other little tidbits that we think deserves a little bit of light shone on it uh, in the podcast. The playlist will be available on Spotify and Apple Music under Fantastic Voyage, Best of the 60s. It'll be posted just with our personal profiles, but you'll be able to find it. Uh, Johnny, we'll, we'll tweet out the links. Uh, yeah, this, the sequencing, we think, uh, we, we really put some effort into it. Johnny actually put in, you know, he, he did the sequencing, uh, something that he's always kind of had a knack for. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, like I used to make, you know, mixed tapes and stuff like that, like blank cassette tapes, even blank CDs. And I've always admired the art of making a playlist. You know, you kind of have to know what you're doing in terms of sequencing. You need to, you know, can't be too many fast ones jammed close together can't have you know you kind of have to go up and down or if you want to go all fast you go all fast there's really uh, you control the mood and it's kind of a lost art form so we're hoping to to bring a little back uh bring a little bit of that magic back with this playlist it's kind of like djing you know in a in a way but doing it way like early like ahead of time if you're djing you can read the mood of of a room but if you're making a playlist you kind of have to anticipate the mood of the room, which is, it's an art form. Totally. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I was just on the beach recently and I was like, there was a bunch of us there and I, I had a, I actually made the playlist for that too. And, you know, it kind of started off fast paced, you know, a lot of B-52s and stuff. And then the sort of mid tempo kind of relaxing ones took over at, at around like, you know, 5 PM when everyone was getting ready to kind of pack it in. <laughs> yeah. You know, it kind of all came together and it all almost went according to plan. Uh, I've always kind of had like OCD, borderline OCD with that sort of thing. So it makes sense that I always kind of became the designated playlist slash music slash DJ guy, whatever you want to call it, you know. Well, it started when you were, I could vouch for this, when you were three years old, maybe. Uh, Our rooms are right next to each other. And every time I pop my head in, you'd be making playlists or no, making mixtapes through this old multimedia console we had with a record player on top and cds and tapes but you'd always be taking records and making tapes with them and mom and dad tell the story all the time that you you taught yourself to read by trying to figure out what beatles song was on what side you had to figure it out so that's how you did (laughs) and you were you were writing on on all the yeah you had to write on the other maxwell that little paper they gave you room to record the track or room to write the track Right. Yeah. Ultimately with this playlist, I think what we're aiming to do is just, we're trying to wrap up the 1960s, David Bowie's 1960s input. And we're trying to do that by giving a sense of representation of his career up until this point, but also, and I think mainly just picking what are our favorites and yeah, without further ado, should we get into what we have as the first track on this said playlist? The, the first track 
of our best of the 60s playlist is a non-album is it a b-side b-side to rubber, rubber band. band it is the london boys not rubber band it is the london boys is the opener yes it was actually going to be an a-side back when bowie was still with who would it have been the lower third in 1965 pie records rejected it and it was also considered for inclusion on his debut record but bowie and the producer tony hatch thought the lyrics were too strong which is another way of saying they're too good right because the lyrics are <laughs> yeah strong <laughs> I, what Pi didn't like, and I guess what Bowie and Tony Hatch thought were too risque, were there was references to drug taking, which was taboo back in the day, which is funny to me because London Boys is quite clearly an anti-drug song, and so it was deemed inappropriate for radio play. I think it just you know, went maybe, right, went right over their heads, probably like a lot of the lyrics that he was writing in this era. Try making that make sense. It's tough, uh, you know, yeah. but. <laughs> The, the person in question, the person that Bowie's singing to, takes the pills too much. He doesn't give a damn about the job he's got. And even though he's abusing the pills and he feels queasy and decidedly ill, he's with the London boys. He's in the mod gang. He fits in. And that's all that matters to him. And it bites him in the ass. You know, he, he thinks he's had a lot of fun, but now he doesn't have anything. He's on the run. It's a great ode to fitting in with the cool kids, you know, getting flashy clothes and having what you think is fun until you realize how hollow it all is and it's too late to turn back. Now you wish you'd never left your home, but you, you got what you wanted, you're on your own. You know, it's a, it's a very mature and a very hostile track. It's definitely one of his maturest recordings to date. This was 1966. Well, and very Buddhist of him too. Like that's a, that's a Buddhist kind of ideology of, you know, material things won't bring you happiness, right? Um, yeah. it's maybe an indirect nod to something that he was dabbling in a bit, but it's, it's there. It's very present in the sixties mm -hmm. with Bowie. I mean, and throughout the rest of his career too, but especially at this time, I get kind of a similar feeling when I listen to this song that I do when I listen to like a rolling stone by Bob Dylan, where he's kind of like a, he's given like a, aha, like, see now that you've done all of this like now like who's really on top now it, it, it's maybe not necessarily the same outcome as like a rolling stone but it's kind of the same attitude towards the the character in question it's kind of like a, yeah. almost like maybe mocking or something i, I don't know it's well, i i get a similar feeling when i listen to this song it makes sense completely because what he's essentially doing is he's, you know, he's holding up a big mirror and he's shoving it in front of his audience because he's singing this song like to us. He says, now you're with the London boys, you know, you think you've got it made. He's saying it to us, right? Well, it's like, how do you feel to be on your own, to be without a, right? Yeah, it's, it's the it's, same thing. And you're like, I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. What's he saying this to me for? But that's, yeah. that's what he's doing on this track is he's flipping that, that, he's holding up that mirror to the audience and kind of making them feel ashamed. And he was really into Dylan in this period. He'd always listed him as a, as an influence early on. The song itself is, I really like the buildup of the vocal where it kind of just builds into the point where he's almost shouting at the end. Um, mm -hmm. He actually planned originally, maybe before he decided on some other songs, but he planned to cover it on pinups, which would have been kind of neat because he felt that it kind of fit into that, you know, the, the early mod scene 
uh, in Britain. It, I, I can see it. It, it would have worked, I think. I think that was in one of Chris O'Leary's books, right? He said that he was actually going to have like verses from this song in between, like spaced in between tracks. But yeah, I guess it was just ultimately something that he figured was too big of a project to take on. So he just scrapped it. But it would have been neat to have this song be a segue into multiple other tracks. That would have been neat to cut it in like that. Kind of like the Who sell out with the ads in between. Um, he did record this one uh, for in the toy sessions, which is neat that he thought, well, what was that like 30 years later, 25 years later, he thought, well, I guess now's the time to recycle it. He always had plans to come back to it. And there's a great reason for that. It's because it's just a great song. Uh, This, this playlist would be very incomplete without this song. It's one of his best up until this point in his career. And it's, uh, it's just in terms of his whole career, it's great too. I think that's why we started the playlist off with this song because it's just so strong and it's one of his best you would normally pick a faster one to start it off with, but we just went for, you know, full on quality with this one. And I think that if anybody's unfamiliar with it and they hear this, they'll maybe get a, a newfound respect for Bowie's sixties period, because it kind of gets looked at as very, very inferior to the rest, but there's, there's gems like this to be had. And, you know, this is, I think arguably the best of the bunch. Right. Uh, so to follow that up, the second song on our playlist is Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed. Uh, this one will pick people up. It's a nice little rocker. Uh, fits in, I think, good at the beginning of a playlist. Definitely a rocker. It's almost like a precursor to The Man Who Sold the World, which can't really be said about any of the other tracks on Space Oddity, which this song is on, the album Space Oddity. If you had no knowledge of when each Bowie record was released, you'd have a pretty hard time trying to figure out what came before and after The Man Who Sold the World, right? Because it, kind of, it sits awkwardly in his, yeah. in his catalog chronologically. Now, this track is probably your only clue as to what sound he was heading in or what direction he was heading in with the next record. It's kind of like Halloween 3. It's Bowie 3, and it's a little bit different than the rest. Well, a whole lot different than the rest of the Halloween <laughs> movies, but yeah. I don't really... I think we covered the song in our Space Oddity episode, so we'll move along uh, to one that we didn't cover because it's another uh, it's another single. Uh, Karma Man is their third track on our playlist. Um, I, I think this is a track that most people would enjoy. It, it's it's more straightforward and it's it's more commercial uh, than a lot of the stuff on that first record. You know, Bowie was trying his hand at some singles to get the ball rolling on his career, you know, to get his career to take off. In Ken Pitt's memoirs, he wrote that Bowie said Karma Man and a handful of others from this period were his attempt at top 10 rubbish. But they aren't rubbish at all, are they? He ditches that silliness that was littered all over the first record and just started churning out some great tunes with some phenomenal melodies. And this is one of many from that period that we've included on this playlist. This should be noted too. It was the, well, it was either this or Let Me Sleep Beside You. They were recorded the same day. It was, uh, September of 67 they were the first it was his first session with Visconti so one of those two songs is the the first time he collaborated with what I think I've kind of argued for a while now would be his most significant collaborator I mean guys like Mick Ronson and Brian Eno and you know the list goes on and on Carlos Alomar um, they they kind of stand out a bit but Visconti was he was there for so much I'm pretty sure that like low and heroes were actually 
they were produced by Visconti, not Eno. Is that right? It's a common misconception that they were produced by Eno because he was involved and because he was there and he has some co-writing credits. But you know, you're right. They were in fact produced by Visconti. Right. And he was he was there right to the very end. So yeah, very, very significant uh, in that respect as well. Um, and it makes but- sense that he would work with them because this is this song is, you know, pertaining to Tibetan Buddhism, right? Which is what Visconti was into as well. So they always had that, they had a very close bond. You know, they were very great friends and he worked up with them right until till Black Star, right? So the Buddha brothers, yeah. I've, I've never really given this song much thought in terms of the, you know, what the lyrics even mean. Uh, it's just, you know, the slow down, slow down part kind of really stands out. But I mean, I've never really given it too much thought other than uh, the the obvious references to Ray Bradbury's uh, illustrated man, uh, you know, the tattooed man from the, his short stories with all the, it's pictured on the arms of the karma man is like, it's the same mm-hmm. character. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, it's a catchy tune. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. I do like some of the verses, like, you know, uh, they're just interesting. Just when you think of Buddhism, when he's got lines like, uh, karma man tattooed on your side the wheel of life i see my times and who i've been i only live now and i don't know why wheel of life as in life being circular and endless and then i see my times and who i've been that's talking about reincarnation you know he sees previous iterations of himself on silly boy blue we mentioned on the uh, david bowie's side two episode he references the overself. here he's referring to essentially the same thing his soul in an endless wheel of life it's really too bad Deerham lost interest in Bowie after his album flop because he was turning out great music and not just weird novelty stuff, but some serious, mature, good, honest pop records that could have had some success, I think, had they not given up on him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like this track, uh, like you said, this was recorded in the same session as Let Me Sleep Beside You. It was slated to be the B-side, but Deerham just said, no, we don't want either of these tracks. And so it remained shelved until 1970. It was on that the Wonderful world of David world, Bowie. Or... Yeah, that one. Yeah. He's got the perm on the cover. Yeah. Right. So it sat on the shelves for like three years. I think this was September 67. That came out in 1970. So he records this great song. And it doesn't even end up on a, on a record or, or anything or even on a single as a B-side until three years later. That's, right. that's too bad that that's how that all panned out. You mentioned Silly Boy Blue uh, a few moments ago. That's the fourth song on our playlist. But we chose, uh, well, you chose, and I totally agree with it, uh, a live version of it from what year was it? Was it 1968? Okay. You know, nothing against the album version, which I also really love. It's just that this version features a much more bombastic and elaborate arrangement. There's more strings, there's gongs and chimes. The album version to me is already a great song, but a great song that had even more potential, which doesn't happen often, right? How much better can it get? But no, that potential wasn't tapped by Tony Visconti and his orchestra. They're the ones who produced this track for the the BBC session, even down to the drums, which have more of an echo on this version. Everything about it has that wall of sound quality to it, which really enhances it all for me. And I, I know a lot of people see it this way, too. Uh, Nicholas Pegg in his uh, complete David Bowie book wrote about the Top Gear session this was recorded for and said the majestic arrangement of Silly Boy Blue is of particular note and I for one and I know you uh, also uh, really agree with that statement. 
Yeah, I love the way that towards the end of the song, it it almost sounds like Bowie's drowning in the instrumentation. Like he's kind of like mm-hmm. the vocal gets kind of covered up maybe by that by the the arrangement, but in a good way. Like it's not it doesn't yeah. ruin it. Like you know, some might say that Aladdin's saying the 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 vocals are kind of buried, but it's. I think even in those circumstances, it's good. I mean, maybe it was intentional then. Um, maybe it was intentional here. I'm not sure if it was or not, but it, it sounds great. And it's maybe not the definitive version of the song. If I were to play it for somebody for the first time, I might play the album version. Uh, I don't know. I, I could be, you know what? I think this playlist maybe talked me out of that, actually. This might be, the, <laughs> I, I might consider this the definitive version of this song. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. I think so. It's kind of interesting too, because a lot of people think that the definitive version of, they see Silly Boy Blue BBC as the definitive version. And they also think they feel that way about the last song as well, Karma Man. Uh, And that's close for me with Karma Man. I do think that version is very good too, but it's like the backing vocals are too overpowering on that version or something. I don't quite see it the same way, but this one I do think without a doubt is, is, I can say clearly my favorite version. What I love about this track, and I don't think we mentioned it on our David Bowie self-titled episode, is that this is another one of his underdog epics. You know, the song is about Tibet, which was sort of viewed as like this blissful utopia in the London hippie scene. There was a Tibetan society house in London that Bowie would visit up to four times a week, I read in this period. And it was viewed as like the holiest of holy places. All the people would go there for this beautiful experience, you know, like heaven. You know, nothing bad happens here. And yet... Bowie saw that as an opportunity to write about a boy who couldn't fit in. And this is a world that Bowie strives to be a part of because it's so peaceful. But then he goes and writes a song about a silly boy who doesn't belong. You know, he always wrote about the disconnected, the outcasts, the misunderstood. And I mentioned on the David Bowie side B episode that I think that's because he sees himself in them. Yeah. Very empathetic uh, nature he, he had. Yeah, I really got to thinking about this when we did uh, the last episode on Space Oddity Side B because there are songs like Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud and God Knows I'm Good. You know, the main characters are all underdogs. And Bowie has this quote actually about Free Cloud where he says, it was about the disassociated, the ones who feel as though they're left outside, which is how I felt about me. I always felt I was on the edge of events, the fringe of things and left out. A lot of my characters in those early years seem to revolve around that feeling. It must have come from my own interior puzzlement at where I was. And for all those reasons, I think the concept of Silly Boy Blue is so fascinating. And I think Visconti really tapped into that concept with the arrangement. I think it's fantastic. Love the song. Love this version. Next is Let Me Sleep Beside You, which we just mentioned earlier. Uh, this is one of my favorites from the, from the 60s. Great little, this was, I think, another one of those ones where he was sitting there with Ken Pitt and he said, uh, it's time for me to write some top 10 garbage, which Mm -hmm. ended up being neither garbage or top 10, but great little song. It's a very seductive song. Yeah. Yeah. I always get, I always get sucked into those pre-chorus bits where he sings like. I will hold a lighted lamp and we shall walk together. He was very persuasive and, and it's in a, a much better voice than the voice we got on David Bowie's self-titled. It's a 
much it more of Ziggy a deep voice? pitch. It's kind of almost a Ziggy voice. It's getting Pro- there. proto Ziggy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was this an early it, Hermione song? I think I may have seen that in a documentary or something that he maybe had just met Hermione and there may have driven, he may have drawn some inspiration from that meeting. He's very romantic in this period. He also has a, in the heat of the morning, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he is getting more romantic. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if this is because he's getting more serious about relationships. It, you know, this is a, it's more of a song for adults. He even says, child, you're a woman now, almost as if he's talking about his own music because it's starting to mature very much as well in this period. I've never thought of it that way. It's cool. Yeah. I love the terrible music video they shot for this, for the Love You Till Tuesday film. With that, where he's is, doing, is it a fake guitar that he's got? It's like, a he fake guitar. He's, yeah. he's doing all those Jagger-esque hip swinging. It's so awful and shameless that it makes me actually enjoy it. You know, he's, he's gone full rock and roll now, and it's, it's almost like it's supposed to be a joke. So I, I take it, you know, that way. Yeah. This is the one where when we were kids and dad would play images all the time, this one stood out just i think maybe it was the riff the opening riff is really cool mm-hmm. um i almost lobbied for the bbc version of this um yeah with, it, it's with mick one. mick wayne on guitar not ronson um it just they, they rock it up like it's it's more of like a rock um arrangement and it just absolutely smokes it's just it's such a different sound i almost lobbied for it but i think that the the, the actual version, the, the studio version is good enough on its own that mm-hmm. I, you know, it would feel weird not to put that on it more than the live version, but both are just incredible. It's the BBC version is like heavier and slower. Right. So yeah. that almost fits into the world of the man who sold the world. But yeah. And it's one of those great alternate versions of a song that is very alternate right it doesn't really mean it really changes itself up from the original and i feel like when you're able to pull that off and you do it well yeah it it makes for a great version because i you don't like hearing just oh we'll we'll just do it like we did on the album and it's just like well the album version is probably going to sound better right but when you change it up and when you do it well it it, yeah it's it's a real treat if you would have lobbied for that version there wouldn't have been much pushback for me yeah uh, another one that was recorded for Toy. Um, yeah, he was he was revisiting all the good ones from this era uh, in, what was that, 2001, 2002? Around there. Um, the next one is another one that was recorded for Toy, uh, <laughs> Conversation Piece. <laughs> uh, this Conversation Piece is, I think it's the closest he ever got to country. I could picture slide guitar or I could picture laps, a lap steel playing. I get country vibes when I listen to this one in a good, in a good way. If that's apparently that's possible. I didn't think it was <laughs> like sweetheart of the rodeo kind of thing. Right? Kind of. Like, yeah. Guitars, it, yeah. I, I mean, if, if, yeah, if, if they would have had the birds playing over this with that, with that lap steel, it would have, it, it makes sense. It kind of fits um, for a little bit. I kind of was, pulling for a different song over this one um but ultimately i gave way and agreed that this should be on it i think it 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 represents his acoustic side from this era it's the best of the acoustic bunch uh in my opinion uh so for that reason i think it definitely belongs we we mostly agreed on these picks but there was like a couple which were like yours and a couple which were mine i think in the next 
when we do the next period, we'll we'll be doing like alternating takes. We saw eye to eye on a lot of a lot of the ones from this it's, period, but it's going to be a lot harder to to prune things down. Yeah, going forward. So, this one was I, I mean I would have thought for this one like to me if we I had to pick like one song to keep like this might have been it I think like this in my opinion is one of the most beautiful tracks Bowie had ever written and it's it's beautiful in the most heartbreaking way you know like I'm invisible and no one will recall me this is the type of stuff that Brian Wilson was writing on a track like Till I Die you know, where he has like I'm a cork on the ocean floating over the raging sea or I'm a leaf on a windy day pretty soon I'll be blown away Another line, another line that I think it kind of is similar to is from Planet Waves outtakes for Dylan, uh, Nobody Except You. It's a great little song where he has lines very similar to that, where I, I'm a stranger here, no one sees me except you. And in, in this song, Bowie doesn't even have a you. He has nobody. I mean, he is, he is writing about feeling just wholly insignificant. He's, you know, it's like looking at how small you are in the grand scheme of things. And I hate to pseudo psychoanalyze, but I think it's undeniable that David was feeling very small you know, at this point in his life. He's exploring existential nihilism here. The idea that life has no intrinsic meaning or value or purpose. You know, it's, it's gut wrenching stuff. I'm a thinker, not a talker. I've no one to talk to anyway. And the way he sings, I can't see the road for the rain in my eyes is, is such a beautiful melody and it. it almost makes me want to cry. I took this walk to ease my mind To find out what's gnawing at me Wouldn't think to look at me That I spent a lot of time in education all seems so long ago I'm a thinker, not a talker I've no one to talk to anyway I can't see the road for the rain in my eyes It chokes me up when I hear that part of the song. And when a track is able to do that, I mean, music and art in general is all about creating an emotional response. And so when a track is actually able to bring you to tears, to me, that means it has such a profound emotional response. And then by default, it has to be considered one of your favorites. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I think music hits you in different ways. And mm -hmm. while that might not be the reaction you want to have every time, it's it's special when it does happen. And you might not mm -hmm. be looking for that to happen. Usually it's a you know a, a good a good melody or or fun lyrics or something like that. Mm -hmm. Usually is what stands out. But yeah, no, when it can make you emotional, that's that's special. It's really disappointing that this didn't wind up on Space Oddity in place of something like God knows I'm good. At first, I thought maybe it was too personal and maybe he didn't want to he didn't want to open up that much. But that wouldn't make sense because Letter to Hermione is very personal and direct as well. Like maybe he thought Letter to Hermione and an occasional dream and conversation piece on the same record would kind of be, be like too much. That right. the album would turn into you know, the listener Odin on, dis on depression. 
I like where it fits on the 2019 mix that I've got. And like, I think I said it, I wish that they would have cut God knows I'm good because <laughs> it's right after it. And it would have been perfect. It would have, I think it would have just kind of made the album better. Yeah. It was, it was very under, very underrepresented in his catalog. You know, it, it was never on an album. It's not on any greatest hits compilations. You know, it was a B side to an unsuccessful single. Uh, I can't remember which one it was, but it was slapped onto a B side, something around that period. So it's flown under the radar for years. It, it seems like his camp knew that that needed to be corrected. They named that box set that came out a couple of years ago after this song and Visconti added it, like you were saying, to your 2019 mix of the Space Oddity record. I, I think a lot of people realize it was about time that this track got its due. And, and David himself too, because it, like you mentioned, it was another one of those ones that he had revisited. So this was one that got swept under the rug back in the, its day. And I think very unfairly. Yeah. What's the next one, John? It's called Space Oddity. You may have heard of it. Oh yeah, that one. Uh, it's what the, the playlist wouldn't be right if we didn't have it on. <laughs> this I do love wrong playlist. I do love though that this is the one that everybody knows. So we slapped it right in the middle. You know, you had to wait for it. You couldn't. You're not no cheating. You know, you had to play those first few great ones that you might not have heard before you got to this one. I refused yeah. to start it off with Space Oddity. It had to be in the middle. But it, it like you said, it had to be on <laughs> yeah. somewhere. There's, I might be a little bit guilty of this sometimes where if a song is just super big, I, I tend to kind of mellow out on it a little bit where I think, oh, this is like, here we go again. Um, but this one is, and this kind of, I have that feeling towards the song a little bit. Uh, you know, every Bowie tribute or whatever is going to have the lyrics. It's going to have ground control to Major Tom spliced into mm -hmm. it at some point. But there's no denying like this. This song is great. It hasn't grown old on me by any means. Uh, I, I mean, I don't listen to it enough anyway for it to to really to, for me to get sick of it. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. like I listen to FM radio anymore where, you know, they throw the same things down your throat every day. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, this one we may leave some tracks that have that kind of effect on us off of future playlists. We'll see. There aren't many of his big songs that I don't like. Um, I can't really think. Yeah, of, like, I love there's them all. One, yeah. There's one that's kind of sticking out, which we'll get to in the Spiders era, but it'll be interesting to see if we have the same feeling towards it. I think I know what song you're referring to, but we'll yeah. we'll save that for that episode and we'll just... Uh... We'll skip over Space Oddity because there's nothing to say about the song that hasn't been said 10,000 times already. By us. So, uh, we, yeah. Yeah. So what, what's the next one? We got uh, one of your favorites. I know this is arguably your favorite song and maybe the whole playlist. I don't know. You can yeah. you speak for yourself. Uh, in the Heat of the Morning, um, another, another one that came slightly after the first, the debut album. Um, and it was planned or he planned to put it on the second Deerham album if it was to come to fruition, but it didn't. Um, they brought this song to Deerham and said, we want this to be the lead single for the second Deerham album. And they rejected it. And it ultimately led to Ken Pitt asking for his release from Deerham. So it was kind of the final nail in the coffin for mm -hmm. Bowie and Deerham, something that just didn't really work out for him. Um, I, I just can't understand how they would turn this down as a single. I, I think it was 
just one of the best songs that he wrote in, I guess it would have been 68 or was mm-hmm. it maybe late 67? I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I should probably know this if it's one of my favorite songs. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't even know where to start with what I like about this song the most. Um, I guess I'll start with the strings uh, put on by Visconti. They're just incredible. I think it just fits amazingly with the melody of the song. It's probably one of my favorite passages or little fragments of a Bowie song like ever. It's something that I've cornered people at parties and been like, okay, come over here. I got to show you this. And then I go play it for them, like on my little phone speaker in their ear. Like, can you hear those strings? Like, isn't that incredible? And they're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think we'll we'll play that here. I'll tie a knot in rainbow's end Organize the breeze Light my candle from the sun I'll give you daylight for a friend I'll do all of these I'll prove that it can be done Oh, I'm so much in love Like the ragged boy who races with the wind In the heat of the morning In the shadow I'll clip your wings And I'll tell you I love you In the heat of the morning I also love how there's a a switch in chords. Uh, The song is is in G and then it kind of switches. It goes G, B minor, C, a major and then it switches to a flat minor and then to b major it it just it's such an amazing transition it, it just something about that that chord change it just hooks me every time i hear it um i love when you get that feeling of a good chord change that even after listening to a song for 30 years it stands out bowie was notorious too for having chord changes that didn't make sense right and it was because he was sort of I think there's like two reasons is one because he was an untrained musician, but two, because he just had a very crazy way of going about songs. He, you know, he didn't go about it conventionally. So those two things kind of added together uh, made for some very unique and interesting chord changes. I think the most popular of which we'll get on uh, when we do the hunky dory episode for life on Mars, but yeah. Yeah. You know, if, yeah, like w- weird chord changes are definitely one of Bowie's main calling cards. And I think one thing listeners will notice throughout doing this podcast is that you'll definitely have more to say about that type of thing. And I usually am more of a guy who will appreciate the lyrics a bit more and not that we don't appreciate the other. Right. But yeah, you're more lyrics. We kind of, we, we kind of lean one way and sound is still really important to me. It's very I mean, important. I know lyrics are to you, but we kind of do. Yeah. And throughout this show, I think we'll kind of lean one way. Right. Another part that I really like um, is the organ at the end, the electric organ playing at the, it sounds like Mm -hmm. uh, it's an uncredited session musician, which is too bad because I really want to know who's playing it. It sounds like Rod Argent almost. It sounds like a zombies track. It's it's really great. We might have to splice that in too. Uh, It's just something that you don't kind of expect on this song. Mm -hmm. And then it comes in at the end. It's like, oh, so this song can kind of rock too. Yeah, one of my favorites uh, of the era. 
might be my favorite pre-Space Oddity. Might be my favorite. Yeah, I think it's my favorite song of the 60s. A bit of a hot take, maybe, but it is, I'm in the heat of the morning. <laughs> I also, well, yeah. I, I like to look at this track too, just like with the historical lenses, this is another sort of turning point in his career. You know, once again, there's so much more authority in his voice on this track. He's rids himself of that Anthony Newley voice that irritated so many. And like we alluded to earlier, he's very romantic on this song. He has some, I'll tie a knot in rainbows end, organize the breeze, light my candle from the sun is some, some very fun wordplay on this track. And like you mentioned, there's that rocking psychedelic organ that kind of catches you off guard. I think just everything about this track is fun. And it's another one of those songs that really just came at the wrong time because, you know, if his label was actually interested in him at this time, he really had something to offer. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's an odd song to go out to leave a label after. I mean, he was writing some really good stuff uh, mm-hmm. post- post the 67 debut i mean this karma man uh let me sleep beside you like it was a step in the right direction i mean right there you just you have that's a side of a record right there a, a great side of a record those you know five songs or whatever it was a karma man i guess london boys was recorded before but you know you could have slipped that on there and like let me sleep beside you in the heat of the morning it's just really incredible stuff yeah so on to the next one. Uh, we're at track number nine now of 14. Uh, there is a happy land. I guess nothing much to add that we didn't cover on that first episode other than we'll just sum it up again. I just love how he was able to bring me back to life before being an adult. And I love how he embraces his childhood because children can't wait to become adults and they don't realize how great they've got it. Right. But everyone in this song knows it and they rub it in the miserable adults faces. It's brilliant. Yeah. Then we decided to, do exactly what Bowie did on his debut album. We followed up. There is a happy land with we are hungry men. Uh, now this is one that, you know, this one helped me keep conversation piece on, uh, or it, I mean, it was going to stay on anyway, but it helped me understand what we were kind of doing with the playlist. This is on for a specific reason. And for that reason, I would include uh conversation piece too, because it represents the folky kind of side or the acoustic side of, of Bowie this one represents the the silliness of Bowie at this time. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the tune itself is, isn't quite as significant as some of the things that we have left off of this playlist. I mean, it just feels right to have this song on the playlist. Totally. I, you know, what I love about David Bowie self-titled is that anytime it's referenced, it's followed by a snicker, you know, like, I recently did a guest spot on uh, the Between Two Rebuilds podcast, another great music podcast, I might add, that you should check out. Uh, a more diverse podcast than ours. They cover a wide range of artists and have a fantastic selection of guests who just explain music that's important to them. But anyway, when I when I plugged our show on their podcast, one of the hosts, Kevin, was like, oh, are you actually going to cover that first one? You know, like, <laughs> you actually starting with like that abhorrent first record? And, you know, regardless of whether you like it or not, you think of that record and you kind of snicker. And kind there's of a like reason a, for that. Are you going to put yourselves through it as if, <laughs> like, you're nuts kind of thing? <laughs> and it's because this record has such an influx of absurdity. And yeah. that absurdity reaches its boiling point on We Are Hungry Men. And it, it encapsulates to me everything humorous about that record and, and why it should be and can be enjoyed on sort of a sarcastic 
ironic level. And when you listen to it, you know you're not listening to a normal record. You know you're not listening to a cool record. You're listening to, at times, insanity. And that's exactly what We Are Hungry Men is. It's pure fun and a barrel of craziness that I get the odd craving for from time to time. Could David Bowie's career have started any differently than what we get? I mean, it just, it makes sense. And that's not, I don't enjoy it just for the sake of saying, or I don't enjoy it just because it's crazy. I I actually genuinely like these songs that are on that first album and are a part of, you know, the images compilation and, and this era maybe some of it's a bit of nostalgia just because of our dad's influence playing it, but I, I, they've stuck and they've like, you know, I'm in my thirties now and it, I still listen to them regularly and I still show them to people thinking like, this is good. This is where it all started. I I actually enjoy them. You have that childhood nostalgia for songs about infanticide. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can only laugh at that. (laughs) Uh, Next is uh, wild eyed boy from free cloud. We put on, we specifically chose the 2019 mix uh, of this one because uh, Tony Visconti he has an interesting video explaining how they uh, I think it was recorded with like a 16 track machine and there's a lot of hiss on each individual track and for the 2019 mix they were able to eliminate most of if not all of it and it sounds a lot better than the original uh, mm-hmm. the, the 1969 mix uh, one of my favorite songs uh from space oddity possibly my favorite um yeah has to be on for me i'm glad you picked this one because i know this is a special song for a lot of people and it's one that doesn't resonate with me as much so even though it's not like a favorite of mine i i do really believe that it deserves to be here and it's interesting how we were pretty much parroting each other's takes on Bowie's first record because the highlights were few and far between. And the bad songs, I think, are pretty universally accepted as bad. But by Space Oddity, there's a lot more room for debate. There's a lot more opinion parody. And that makes the process all the more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's going to get interesting as we try to... like We're going to be talking each other out of songs that we love ourselves it's going to be weird. Like if you pick a song from Ziggy that I happen to like one a little bit more, I'm going to have to make an argument against a song that I would normally be arguing for. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. I think it's yeah, it's torture, but it's, yeah, it's going to be terrible. I, I can't yeah. wait. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next one we had a little bit of uh, back and forth about, uh, but we were kind of, it wasn't tug of war by any means, but we were wondering if we should include it on the album. Uh, just to kind of represent something that I think is, I think we both ultimately decided is important, which is his early R&B kind of rock and roll era. Um, We decided to put Liza Jane on because, hey, that's where it all starts. Yeah. You know, it's a basic six bar blues rewriting of the old Southern standard, little Liza Jane, nothing to write home about, but it's competent enough British R&B. I think this is going to be hands down though, like the blandest song we ever upload to one of these playlists. 
what we're trying to do is ultimately pick our favorite tracks from a particular era, but we're also going for proper representation of all of his styles. We try to straddle the line between the two, but this is the most we'll ever lean towards representation. Right. Bowie's British rhythm and blues period is very forgettable, but this is easily, I think we would both agree the strongest offering of the bunch. And so if forced to include a single track, which maybe we were, this is the one you want to check out. Yeah. Originally recorded or originally, I guess it was, I could say that because it was re-recorded for a toy, which is kind of neat that he went back uh, this, this far for that, for those sessions recorded in May of 64 uh, under the name Davy Jones and the King Bees, one of his many uh, band names. Um, another one that I do like from, from that era or another early one that I like is can't help thinking about me. It's a bit later. I think that one's 66. Uh, but that mm-hmm. one is kind of like his, or at least I think it's a very British invasion kind of sounding song. Um, it sounds very much like the Brit pop stuff of the mid sixties. Um, and he, must have liked that one too because he pulled that one out of retirement uh during the oh 99 it would have been the hours tour i guess uh late 90s early 2000s uh they did like a rock version of it uh like much later and it like that would have been a deep cut if you would have been like a hardcore early bowie fan at one of those shows you probably would have shit yourself uh, did he not do this too during that tour or i think he did it in like well, this came out in 1964, right? I mean, this is really, really early. I think it was something like his, the 40th anniversary of the song's release, and he was feeling really nostalgic that day during a show, so he did like a short kind of like passage of this song, almost like a happy birthday Which one? length. Liza Jane or... Liza or Jane. Help. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. 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 yeah, that makes sense. What year would that have been? Like, oh, four. I'm get- I think I read it was like a milestone anniversary. So I'm guessing like 40th anniversary would, would check out. Yeah, but- that, that sounds right. That's cool. I mean, it's where he got his start. It's where, I mean, he said his, his earliest influence, uh, maybe not his earliest one single influence, but he, he references Little Richard a lot. Um, yeah. I could see Little Richard doing Liza Jane. Maybe he did. I don't know. I, I don't, I've never heard him do it, but he definitely could have. And his voice is very not quite the Paul McCartney little Richard that we love, but it, he doesn't sound like Bowie. When you listen to this, maybe it's because he's just getting through puberty or maybe it's because of the style that he's singing. Uh, but it hardly sounds like him. There's a great little story about how uh, Leslie Kahn, who was managing Bowie at the time, he had something like a hundred copies of this sitting in his parents' garage and I guess he'd moved out and then his mom asked him if she could throw the records out. And he said, yes, <laughs> now, this is shortly after it came out, you know, it didn't take off. They were, you know, useless at the time, but you know, copies of that single go for like $2,500 us now or something. So wow, never, never throw uh, records out. No, <laughs> it'd be a lesson, lesson be learned. Leslie Kahn actually was the one who linked Bowie up with Mark Boland for the first time. They were both, because stuff like Liza Jane wasn't selling well, Leslie Kahn had commissioned him and Boland to paint his office. Right. Apparently yeah. they, they did a horrible That's job right. of it. And they, they, they met each other at some point in the 60s through him. So I think, you know what? I think he may have told that story on the hours tour too. I can picture him in that 
blue sweater that he was wearing with his long hair kind of in his eyes telling a story about meeting Bo and maybe it was around maybe he was playing can't help thinking about me I think it was on a TV special. I know that I, uh, our cousin Justin uh, at Waterman Art on Twitter, he actually tweeted that link out to us. It was a clip of him talking okay. about when he met Bowen. Right. He thought it was in reference to Ken Pitt, I think, though, but it was at, it was Leslie Kahn. I believe right. it was maybe even before Ken Pitt was in the picture, but don't Bowie, quote me on that, but I do know it was with Leslie Kahn. Bowie was probably telling the same story on that tour. On know? the, yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. yeah well, it's that, like, yeah. I've seen Paul McCartney. Well, you and I have both seen Paul four times and we hear this. Yeah. We hear the same story every time, basically. He's <laughs> had such interesting lies and they get stuck on like the same two stories. Jimi Hendrix asked for me to tune his guitar. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If I hear the scramble eggs story one more time. Yeah. So the second last, the penultimate song of our playlist is made of bond street great little tune yeah it's a great song to be the penultimate song too it was on the debut record and it, it, it is on our playlist um yeah it's, it's just it's short it's to the point it's upbeat it's very wordy it's kind of unique in the way that he's got these weird vocal patterns going on and it's just ultimately a, a fun little song that i thought and i think we both thought really just fit near the end of the playlist you know kind of wrap things up a nice little one last little a jolt of energy before we get to the sort of uh, lighters in the air closing track that we that we chose to to close the playlist yeah. it's a waltz um the last song on the playlist is memory of a free festival now everyone gets mad thinking what you didn't include signet committee or? well the signet committee was the notable omission i mean maybe if i was going for maybe Signet Committee shouldn't have been on here, should have been on here over Made of Bond Street, but I don't know. I, I, I honestly play Made of Bond Street more, and it just probably because it's not nine minutes long or whatever. Signet yeah, and we, we had our gripes with that song, not that we hate it, because if I had to add one more song to this, I think it would be Signet Committee, but. You know, we have our reasons for it not being on here and you can check them out on our Space Oddity side A episode and you can also yell at us for this because I do think we're being a little sacrilegious. Maybe, but, yeah. You know, we, we, we have control and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> we, we're holding Signet Committee off. So Memory of a Free Festival is on. It, it closes out the playlist. It closes out the 60s. Uh, it's been closing out our episodes the last two uh <laughs> podcast episodes um yeah great tune uh it, it had to end the playlist right just because it sounds like an album closer it is a an album closer and it just embodies everything about closing a chapter and in this case the chapter is the 60s which is not only what we're closing the door on by doing this recap but it's also what happened after this song was released you know the counterculture effectively ended the beatles broke up you know all of this stuff coincided with the year 1969, which is kind of remarkable how that all panned out. Yeah, like Decades usually bleed into one another, but the 60s just kind of went, as soon as 1970 begins, it's like a light switch was flipped. And memory of a free festival is the last thing you hear before it gets switched. So that concludes our best of the 60s playlist. Um, very curious to hear what some people might think of what we included, what we didn't include. Um, there's a few, uh, 
I'm, I can't stand honorable mentions. Uh, I always figure like, what's the point in reading out the ones that didn't make it, just make your playlist longer. But uh, there's a few other songs that I kind of just want to touch on. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily honorable mentions, but. Uh, it's honorable mentions. Yeah. Yeah. These the laughing suck. gnome. <laughs> <laughs> I know the laughing gnome was one that it, it's the, probably the most popular one, right. That was left off. Yeah, it's kind of not even, it's like notorious almost. It's yeah, it's a that if we didn't pick Hungry Men to represent the the silliness of the 60s, uh Laughing Gnome would have done the trick. Um I really like the B side of Laughing Gnome too. Uh Gospel According to Tony Day is a is a fun little song. I like the guitar on it. Uh I like that he drops the F bomb on Gospel According to Tony. You know what? Day. That's a myth. I I listened to it. He says waste of freak or waste of flipping time. I got to listen closely. Oh, I don't know. I, I well, okay. I, we're going to, we're going to have to splice it. I, I want right to go now. in here. Yeah. I'm going to play it on my phone right now. Who needs friends? Oh. Waste of flipping time. I don't know. I'm still hearing waste of fucking time. He sounds like <laughs> Connor McGregor. <laughs> Um, I do love those little kind of ad libby comments he has after each uh, verse, though. My favorite is uh, the Brendan O'Lear. He'll you he buy buys me, a scotch. me a scotch. I'll buy me a. He'll buy then, me a beer. He yells out "tight fist" at the end. <laughs> tight fist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- this is a. This is a. I, I do like this song. It's just it's. You wouldn't play it for somebody if you're like, oh, this is what makes Bowie great. He's just kind of like, it's almost like Please Mr. Gravedigger. It's almost like talking, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's it's just, it's a fascinating little song. And it's, I don't know, very English, very, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I, I like the humor behind the lyrics. I think it would have fit on that first record quite well if, if you would have put it on. Yeah. Another one that I like from the early or I guess it would have been early space oddity sessions or maybe just kind of in between is when I'm five. Uh, there yeah. isn't, I don't even think there's an official studio recording of it. It might just be like some, some demos that actually have some yeah, there's, more instruments on it. There's like two, de- there's the home demo. Then there's a demo he did with uh, Hutch with John Hutchinson, which yeah. is on like the Mercury demos compilation. Then there's like, the definitive version that was on love you till Tuesday is actually, a, I think it's a John Peel BBC session. Right. It's actually like the only, the only proper studio recording of that song. They're all that's three, one, all three are on the, that conversation piece box. I've been listening to that quite yeah. a bit, right? I listened mm-hmm. to it uh, when it came out just for kind of, there's a lot of tidbits, a lot of things that were totally new to me on the conversation piece uh, box set. It's like little weird home demos that are like, and I, I have that Chris O'Leary book too. And he talks at the end in it about a bunch of songs that are, they, I think he has a section called the unheard songs. And there's a, a bunch of them since the book had been published, popped up on that conversation piece box set. So it was a, re- it's a really cool listen. Uh, if the listeners out there haven't uh, gone into that yet. Yeah, I, mean, um, I just pulled up the track list here. I mean, I remember the first few songs I'd never even heard of, like April's Tooth of Gold, the Reverend Raymond Brown attends the grand, attends the, I can't read, it's the title's too long, it's not popping up, but yeah, I mean, those were songs that until that came out, what was it, 2019, I didn't even know that they, or I might have read that they existed, but it was like those songs that you'd never heard before, so. Yeah, yeah. And When I'm Five is on there too, well, 
and when I'm five is, I mean, that's one that I've, I've known for a while because it was on that love you till Tuesday film. We had a VHS of that. Yeah. And I, I like that one. I think almost more than I'm willing to admit, you know, I've always had a soft spot for that song. And, you know, people have always had an issue with the line, uh, the marry my mom line. It's a kid thing. Like that's but, what but all yeah, kids like, think. And I was like, it's crazy to me that people weren't able to piece that together. Like he's a four-year-old. They have a different concept of marriage. You know, it's not like you said he wanted to fuck her or anything. Like, we all said He's not this John week. Lennon. No. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I mean, I I can remember a point in time where that's, like people would ask, like, who are you going to marry? You'd say your mom. Yeah. That, that's, uh, you you well, got to because... spend your life with the woman for the, oh, I'll pick my mom. Like, it's just what you, you don't have that concept of, intimate relationships sex you're four you don't get it you just think well i'm living at home with my mom i'll do that now i'll do that forever like you just this is what every four-year-old thinks you're asked or you ask like why do you marry why did you marry mom because i love her okay who are you gonna marry well i love mom so i'm gonna marry mom yeah he's four yeah uh funny story about this song uh in 20 it was like the week after bowie died um friend of the podcast uh justin had a what we kind of refer to as a bowie wake uh it was just like a huge party at his place where we listened to bowie all night and we stayed up super late jamming uh there's some funny recordings of us later on into the night doing like rock and roll suicide in five <laughs> years um yeah uh the last time i brought my 12 string out was probably that night but anyway um in the middle of the party, uh, when I'm five came on, like blaring loud, and like you, me, and Justin were like into it, and like nobody else really batted an eye, but we thought, in in retrospect, at like peak party time, you know, it was like it's midnight, a crowd or clearer. <laughs> yeah, when I'm five came on, and we talked about it later on, or like as we were leaving or something, thinking like we didn't even play changes, but we played when I'm five. Yeah, any other songs you kind of wanna touch on? I didn't have any other ones written down or I'm just trying to think at the top of my head. There's like, what else is decent from this period? Did, did you ever have a dreams? Kind of another one of those fun. That's that was one the, that, that was the beat of love you till Tuesday, I think. Right. Yeah. And it got, it was like, so Bowie had uh, that album planned out. He had like a track listing that wasn't the official track list. He had one planned. Okay. And, and did you ever have a dream? It was initially on the first side of the record, I believe, or maybe it was the second side. I can't remember, but it was, it was slated to be on the record. And for whatever reason, it, it got pulled off, but I, I would have liked that on there instead of like rubber band or something, or, you know, there's a few songs that are that happy go lucky, playful Anthony Newley thing. That's a that very, I, yeah. Kind of yeah, show to me one. And that one fits in with those, but it's one that I, I like it more than some of the ones on the record. It's not a favorite of mine by any means, but I enjoy it more than some of the stuff that actually wound up on the record. I kind of like the way that he, it's a very wordy vocal, but I kind of, I like the way he delivers it. Mm-hmm. it. There's a very special knowledge that you got my friend. Like it's kind of, it's fun. It's yeah. It's like almost like a nursery rhyme kind of, and it's a, it's a fantasy. I guess maybe he figured he'd had that already covered with there's a happy land or something, but you know, another dreamland kind of song, but it, it is, it is a, a fun a fun little song that you know it's worth listening to at the very least but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put up a huge fight for it it's not the the greatest recording of all time or anything right so uh you put out a call on on twitter 
uh, to our to our friends on there if there was anything that they wanted us to kind of cover or touch on. We we got a an interesting question um, from Elston Gunn the Fourth, friend of the pod. Um, he asked if we think Bowie was influenced by Ray Davies in this era. Uh, quote quote was a lot of those early songs have a uh, stories about ordinary people quality to them um i guess the the easy answer would be well i mean he covered uh where have all the good times gone on pinup mm-hmm. so it, he definitely gives an, a nod to his love for the kinks um he was actually i did some digging on on bowie what he was covering in those early early days uh this one was Manish with the Manish boys. boys. He was doing yeah. "You Really Got Me" and all day yeah. and all the night, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, he was definitely a Kinks fan. Um, he actually wrote liner notes for uh, a Kinks compilation or something in the, I don't know, it wasn't even too long ago, maybe like ten years ago or something, uh, where he claimed he never heard a Kinks song that he didn't like. So, yeah, I mean, I can see him uh, being super influenced by Ray Davies at the time, especially the. The direction that the kinks were going in the mid 60s with face to face and and something else it was kind of that baroque pop they kind of took they went mm-hmm. from that traditional r&b to a bit more of a that kind of I, I call it baroque i guess it's a classical influence but kind of a bit more a bit less blues based maybe or r&b yeah i, I totally see the bowie to ray davies connection i mean i guess like a lot of contemporary acts at the time were doing sort of a similar thing, like these surreal sketches of English things or places. You'll think of Penny Lane or Strawberry Fields. Pink Floyd had Arnold Lane. But Ray Davies has to be the biggest proponent of that. You know, yeah. the entire Village Green Preservation Society record, amongst others, are just filled with these third-person character sketches. Arthur. It's exactly what David was doing in 1967, you know, embracing his Englishness. And I mean, yeah, like you'd alluded to, let's not forget Bowie also has a connection to that earlier kink stuff. The, the kink started off as a British R&B and garage rock group. And that's what Bowie started off as too. He did the You Really Got Me type stuff and he actually covered You Really Got Me as part of his live repertoire in that period. And Bowie actually met Ray Davies in 1964 when the King Bees were on the same bill as the Kinks, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah. They never became like great friends, I don't think or anything, but you know, he was 1000% aware of what Ray was doing. And, and it, it comes out in his music a lot, especially during that Deerham period. But don't take my word for it. Listen to David himself. The secret of Ray's success is that he's just got it. He's just a wonderful songwriter. A song that I covered actually once, Where Have All the Good Times Gone? I thought that that entire song was also very moving. Um, and again, it's the sense of remembrance of things past. I mean, it, that keeps recurring in Ray's work. He creates a mass memory for us all of, as I say, of, a, of an England that possibly did or didn't exist. And I think that's what makes his stuff, uh, it has a kind of a real mystical radiance to it. Because you're not really quite sure whether he's talking about a place that really exists or one that he would like to have existed, you know. And that's, I think, I think that's the, the most charming thing about his work. Intimacy, I think, is another thing Bowie shared with Ray Davies during this period. Take Waterloo Sunset, for example, uh, another song that Bowie covered, actually, uh, in 2003, right? That was a B-side to, uh, which song was it? Uh, Never Get Old. Didn't he put, 
I think he performed it live with Ray Davies too. Later, we may have to <laughs> insert that clip too. <laughs> I, I, maybe I dreamt that. Um, I'll do some digging. I don't. I won't. I don't want to get too <laughs> into it in case he didn't. But if he did, <laughs> we'll insert it here. But I'd like to introduce Ray Davies. And so, yeah, you, like th that's a very, that's another one of those very intimate songs. You know, Ray Davies apparently felt very possessive of the song. And as he wrote it, he wouldn't let any of the rest of the kinks hear the lyrics until the, like the backing vocals and the backing tracks were cut. Ray was quoted as saying, even when the record was finished, it felt like a secret. It was like an extract of a diary nobody was allowed to read. I found that quote fascinating because this was exactly what I said when we were recapping Letter to Hermione from the space out of the album. I said that it felt like a conversation we weren't supposed to hear. So yeah. they, they both share that little bit of bravery and vulnerability, you know, uh, releasing music that comes from a very private place. We're both Kinks fans too, big time. Mm -hmm. um, possibly the most underrated group ever. Uh, I would argue. Well, they, they belong to be up there in like, you know how everyone's like, oh, the Stones are the they're the band that everyone always challenges and, you know, wants to be contrarians and say you're better than the Beatles. Like to me, if you're going to make that argument, like I, I can make a stronger one, I think for the kinks, I honestly do. Yeah. Not that we're making that argument to set the record straight, but I mean, I know, but I take the kinks over Zeppelin. I take the kinks, uh, the stones. That's a close one, but. Well, I, it's always tough for groups like the beach boys and the kinks because they were kind of a one man show. I mean, I, yeah, I still love Dave Davies. I love, Carl and Dennis Wilson, but I mean, they were, they weren't uh, equivalent to a Lennon or a McCartney or a Jagger or a Richards. They were right. They weren't even second fiddle. They were, they were good third fiddles. Right. So, well, and they were often working uh, on their own too. Like while they yeah. were, while there were multiple songwriters in the groups, they weren't collaborating in the same way that John and Paul were at least early on. I mean, I know that they mm -hmm. kind of went and did their own thing, like, especially on the white album, a lot of the stuff was, you know, but it, it, you know, there was more than one dominant creative force there, right? It wasn't like, right. okay, you know, Ray's going to write 11 of these 12 songs. It was like, you know, split down the middle. Uh, Brian Wilson and uh, Ray Davies were never really given that luxury. Yeah. Well, and like George is a better songwriter than Carl, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no disrespect. Well, that's what to makes Carl. and what's a, that's what makes the Beatles so great, right? Is their third fiddle was better than all those other groups second and, you know, so on and so Arguably forth. Arguably first, the, yeah. The, the reasons why the Beatles are good isn't exactly short. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that was a pun or not um, by Elston Gunn saying uh, ordinary people quality, but I really like uh, the soap opera album from 74 or 5. Uh, the song Ordinary People's good. So with that, uh, we're going to wrap up our best of the 60s fantastic voyage episode um we'd love to hear your opinion on our on our playlist we hope that uh you'll give it a give it a listen give it a click uh yeah uh, we'll tweet it out uh both the spotify and 
iTunes or Apple Music uh, links so that you can easily find it. Um, yeah, we, we tried our best to, to represent the, the era, um, but we ultimately we picked our favorites and uh, we'd love to hear what you think uh, was is a glaring omission or some that you agreed with. Uh, yeah, that, that's it from us uh, from this episode. We're going to be diving into the spiders era uh, coming up. We're just going to call it the spiders era. Um, and we'll, we'll do a similar episode once we reach the conclusion of that. Um, yeah, we'll be doing the man who sold the world next. A very, uh, a, 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 the first big turn, I think, maybe in his, uh, in his career arc. Yeah, because Space Oddity is a turn as well and, and a big one. But uh, yeah, I think the man who sold the world is not only is it, is it a huge turn from the previous record, but like the next one also sounds nothing like it. It, it really fits awkwardly chronologically in his yeah. catalog. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to get into it because, you know, this is why we did this show is because we get to just take in such a wide range of sounds and, and spend weeks on end, you know, dissecting all of the different ones. And yeah, this next record we're, we're going to touch on is, is no different. So I can't we've, wait. We've, we've done deep dives on him before, uh, but this is like, we're, we're, we're reaching like the core at this point. And it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm glad that we've got people uh, listening and following along with us. Cause that's what makes it ultimately worth it is, the interactions we have uh, online with the people that are listening and following along. Oh, totally. I, I'll we'll maybe tweet it. I want to see like everybody else's top tens too. And you know, what's your favorite from the sixties and uh, yeah. And yeah, like you said, we'll wrap, we'll wrap the spiders period up similarly uh, when, when we finish that. So, so with that, we'll wrap up the wrap up episode. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on the man who sold the world. Mm-hmm.